Welcome and thank you for joining us on the Pivot Towards Promising Futures podcast, a new audio series brought to you by Futures Without Violence. In these episodes, we will be speaking with leaders and activists in the work to end violence against children and their families. In particular, we explore the many ways that systems can be transformed in order to provide community support to adult and child survivors. We prioritize guidance that advances equity, and we look at the barriers to improved outcomes for the most marginalized. We see this as a crucial pivot away from the harms caused by systems and institutions and a step towards support that center survivors, their families, and their communities. Our aim is to generate a national discussion about how we can transform our mindset and practices to holistically improve child and family safety. We hope you will use these episodes to engage in discussion in your own organizations and communities. We look forward to getting your stories about such efforts. I'm your host, Wendy Mota. Let's dive in. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening. Depending on where you're joining us, we're so happy to be sharing this space with all of you, but very specially with um, our special guest today, Natasha, um, who is joining us to share her expertise on the topic of decolonizing therapeutic therapeutic and clinical interventions. And so we're so excited to have you here, Natasha. And would you mind introducing yourself and telling our listeners a little bit more about you and some of your experiences that you would like, professional experiences that you would like to share with us today? Sure. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. So I am a licensed clinical social worker in the state of Connecticut, and I essentially began my journey working at a local sexual assault domestic violence program back in 1998. And uh, that experience was transformative. I never left the field. You know, my goal was to head into public policy or law, um, thinking that, you know, system change uh, needed to happen on a macro level and encountering individuals who experienced trauma within their homes and community, I realized that uh, the work was happening within the community in ways that were pretty powerful. So ultimately that led me to a um, graduate degree in social work and ultimately working, uh, which I still continue to do in private practice with individuals who've experienced uh, violence, poverty, the ways in which the systems impact individuals and families so yeah you know listening to you Natasha I think about the phrase that we hear from a lot of our colleagues in the field like the work chose me I didn't choose the work you know it's like so many so many times we hear about stories from colleagues and co-workers who started off in one path and you know kind of like ended up in another one but you know in, in a way that was so meaningful and so listening to you reminds me of that. And again, thank you so much for uh, joining us today and being here um, with us. Um, so let's frame and, and set the you know context a little bit. You know, when we think about um, decolonizing, just that one term, you know, there's so many things that come to mind. And I think that many would argue that, you know, modern day therapeutic and clinical approaches used in 
whether it's mental health, human services here in the United States, um, tends to be, um, a lot of the approaches tend to be rooted in mainstream or even white supremacist practices. And I think, you know, in fact, some would make the point that working and serving individuals from these types of perspective really limits the type of growth that some families, communities, individuals can have. So it also kind of brings to mind the fact that, you know, approaches and perspectives that, you know, such as like Black thought, for example, or Black healing or centering Black queer and trans experience, liberation-focused healing, all these things require um, certain or specific training, which oftentimes many say is overlooked or undermined in academic or academic settings or training programs. So I think, you know, I'm so excited to, to dive into this with you today. And I think I'd, I'd love to start um, hearing your perspective in terms of what is missing in the conversation about wellness and mental health for Black, Brown, Indigenous families, of course, including those who experience domestic violence. Absolutely. In a lot of ways, I think that just these conversations and the fact that these conversations are happening in multiple spaces is, is exactly where we need to be. Um, if I take a look at my, if I take a look at my path, I've essentially been in the field for 20 plus years. So probably 25, it's gonna be 25 next year. And what is identified as mental health in a lot of ways is very similar to our system of incarceration. Mm. These are institutions. And I've worked, just to give you a perspective, I'm a system thinker. I work, you know, I love to identify individuals within a system. And what I recognized is I brought into place more of my perspectives around macro level thinking. I have a, a bachelor's degree in sociology. Um, how I influence individuals within systems from law enforcement, me, myself, like the ways in which I communicate to represent my clients was all based on the fact that this is a system that is racist in practice mm -hmm. and policy, visibly. I had experiences where I would sit in, in a school, I largely work with children, I largely work with adults who have developmental trauma, meaning their abuse takes place in their home and within their community. And so there's a child that's identified as having a problem. So mm -hmm. I go in and take a look at this child and I'm taking mental health professionals I had an experience where I took, when I was in training as an intern in graduate school, I took a PhD level individual with multiple years of experience and a license who didn't want to get out of the car with me when we went to assess a four-year-old. Well. Then we walked out of that assessment assessing this child as having bipolar disorder. So this adult professional was uncomfortable stepping out into a community where there were men hanging out, where there was alcohol visible, where it was clearly a different disenfranchised community. Mm -hmm. And they walked away from that experience diagnosing a four-year-old with bipolar disorder, which 
that picture in and of itself kind of gives you an understanding of what's wrong with our system. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So very early on, I think I recognized the fact that these institutions are really designed to find different ways of categorizing mm-hmm. um, poor people, people of color, mm-hmm. women and children, men of color, in ways that continue to perpetuate that type of violence and that type of disenfranchisement in, in communities. So it's often hard for me to have these conversations because it feels as if in talking about whether it's a training in a specific mm-hmm. treatment model, I work specifically with trauma, and I, I go through the best practice. I will train in a specific treatment model. I will look at the research. But as I'm doing it, I'm very aware that there's very little insight that happens into how these models in and of, them, in and of themselves um, continue to harm individuals. Mm-hmm. Just the fact that I have to go to a training to learn information, I then have to come out of that training That's to right. unlearn the information. Mm-hmm. Because just the the... Just even the language that we use, you know, is is an issue. So I I'm, I apologize because I think I'm off topic of your you're question, not. but you're absolutely not. I think it's all re- very relevant, actually. Right. And what I hear you saying is, you know, it's like you come into this field, like I, you know, we're all helpers, right? Like we come in bless our hearts in our twenties, some of us, and it's like we're gonna change the world, and then it's like. Oh, hmm. So I I appreciate you framing it coming from a macro perspective. And I don't know if I want to say accepting the fact, but really being pragmatic in that there's systems work that needs to happen concurrently while servicing poor black, brown, marginalized, indigenous families, right? Like these two things come together. And so I hear a lot of that because it's, um, it resonates with me. It's like, how do you serve? We throw around all these terms, like, Mm -hmm. um, working with underserved, like, you know, marginalized, excluded communities, but how do you really, really competently serve Right? right, in a way that's meaningful, not only for the client, survivor, or family, but um, in a way that's going to impact and provoke, for lack of a better word, change. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And so when I think about clinical interventions, it's like you cannot not think about that without thinking about the systems that houses a lot of these practices. And quite frankly, mark the direction of the lives of a lot of the families, communities that we serve and want to impact. So I really appreciate that framing and you sharing that analogy, like, you know, the categorizing within the system. And oftentimes I think it's like you can't do one without the other. You have the macro and the micro. But if, if you think about it the way you're explaining it, it's like, it's almost like work has to happen at, in, in, in both. Absolutely. At the same time. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's it's intense. Um, so I think, you know, I, I, I appreciate you framing it that way in terms of what's missing. Now, let me ask you this. 
how can therapeutic and clinical practice actually center? So we know what's missing, but how can we kind of zoom in, center the experiences of um, historically excluded communities? Right. So one of the things that I've experienced quite a bit is, um, or what I've noticed in seeking a graduate degree and becoming a professional to be licensed and then, you know, I can now, I'm a professional. (laughs) I'm a professional. I actually, I did have to learn to be a professional and then I had to unlearn how to be a professional. And Mm -hmm. the system that helped me to do that successfully were community-based sexual assault domestic violence programs. The, The roots of this movement, the roots of the work that individuals have been engaged in, that's the foundation of my ability to work with with communities, people of color, individuals in poverty, and meet them where they were at. So it's like the roots of this work, I actually feel really, I feel compelled to say this, it's like, Clinical interventions could be served by understanding some of the values that underscore these movements and, and going Wait, back time to out. Those, Say yeah. that again. Yeah. Say that again, please. Um, clinical mental health institution, this insti- these institutions or this institution in particular, mental health, um, could benefit from um, engaging... It, it, forgive me, I'm, I'm going to, I apologize, I don't remember the specific words, but could benefit from, you know, the roots and the values of domestic violence and sexual assault movements, particularly domestic violence, because those values are the values that I go back to. I, I, I remember one of the first, I was a college student in training. My sociology professor said, you need to get out into the world. I found a flyer and I walked into a volunteer training. And I sat down and I just took in information. I learned strength-based perspective. I learned about empowerment. I, it was the mm-hmm. first time I heard words like oppression. And this is in the late 90s. And so I'm, I'm, I'm learning that when, when my client, when this individual walks in, I need to see them. I remember somebody saying, it's like, you need to find one thing about this individual that you appreciated, even if it's the color of their shoes. And you need to start there. You wow. need to see them as a person. I learned that at my as a volunteer. And so when I was learning about the DSM, back then it was four, TR. Right? What number the, are we at right now? DSM five, the number five, right? Like yeah. um, I had to learn all of that to then unlearn it. And, and what I depended on were those, was essentially looking at the person across from me and understanding that they have everything that they need. They, in fact, have more than they need because they have gotten through experiences that the folks who are trained to to help them heal struggle to even recognize. I'm not saying that they don't go through those same experiences, but I don't know that they recognize the strength within the individuals that we we work with. So my job in and of itself, I feel, has, has been and continues to be seeing that, recognizing that. My job also becomes re-educating them. I talk Mm -hmm. about systems all the time, whether I'm, you know, whether it's in a group 
that I'm working with a group of individuals in a, in a clinical role, mm-hmm. whether it's a, a client or a family, or whether I'm consulting and providing supervision to trainees in a model, I, it always comes back you know, to recognizing the fact that these are individuals and we're a part of a larger system that contributes to this issue. And if we don't recognize that, that is gonna impact our work. Then this is just an exercise. You know, I'm sitting here with you and I'm giving you a diagnosis and I'm engaging all these treatment interventions and models, but I'm not seeing you as an individual. Right. How does that make sense? Like, I don't, and and there are some great models. I, I I feel, I'm grateful that I have the models that I have, but at the end of the day, what value does it have if this person can't even connect to that because I'm not even using language that makes sense or I'm objectifying them in the same ways they've been objectified. Yeah. So um, I hope that makes sense. It does. And I think it's it's so um, useful. It's so helpful to hear you break that down because it's like at a very, at the very minimum, like we're all humans, right? Like that's the minimum. And so, and you'll be surprised so many people in the field, whether it's because they're jaded, they're burnt out, you know, um, their own trauma may get in the way, but oftentimes, and I mean, we talk about this in the DV world all the time, like seeing people as human and, you know, and it's like even thinking about language first, I mean, person first language when we're thinking about, you know, diagnosing or categorizing. But I think it's like, you know, it's so simple and yet so overlooked at the right. same time. Right. You know, um, hearing you speak to Natasha really, you know, I'm going to go roll for one second here. It's it's related, don't okay. worry. But really, thank you. <laughs> Do you feel, and I, you know, I think we're talking about this very broad topic, decolonizing. And I, I want to share my own personal experience in in. in in my journey to wellness, but thinking about, you know, um, trauma, treating trauma, particularly for black, brown, poor, indigenous folks, you know, and and I'm kind of like all over the place, but bear with me. Like for me, it's so important Mm -hmm. to have the space, my wellness space, to be alongside a black practitioner. Like that, I, you know, mm-hmm. even before you, like this is like, and maybe because I'm in the fields, maybe because right. I know what I know, whatever right. the case may be. So in my journey, lifelong journey, and, and you know, really making sure that I am feeling supported, that has always been at the top of my list. Absolutely. You know, seeking help and being in spaces where people not only value my experience like you're saying, see me as a human. Right. But I mean, come on, maybe even understand it because they have similar life experiences. Absolutely. So I guess my question is, what would you say to folks that are in the field that don't necessarily share gender or race with the people that they serve? You know? Not that, I mean, I don't think that it's a barrier because, I mean, different folks, different strokes for different folks. I'm not saying that the way that I've done it is the way that it has to be, but what would you say to, I guess, you know, traditional, you know, maybe mainstream, maybe white practitioners in the field Mm -hmm. 
wanting to uplift the voices of, mm-hmm. of, of excluded individuals and communities. Like, right. you know, um, and I don't know, does, does that question make sense? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the, I mean, the truth is, what's, what's amazing? I'm Gen X, so I'm literally right in the middle. <laughs> literally. And wait, you're not a millennial? Oh my gosh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a fake one, so it's fine. Because right? I'm like a millennial, but I'm like, I'm whatever was before me. Right, I like Remember that- cassette? cassette players yes you know? yes I remember there's so. this in between there's this in between like these yeah, yeah, few yeah. years that are yeah and so I know that and it's and it's yeah so what's true for me still I'm in private practice private practice is a very different world when I go to mm-hmm. a training I'm I'm paying for my training and so I'm mm-hmm. often in space with folks who can pay for their training who can pay for trips to go to places to sit with the people who are you know the head of, the lead of, you know, whatever treatment model or a program. And so there's not a lot of me sitting in the room, hmm. right? There are not a lot of black and brown um, indigenous individuals sitting in the room. And so there are more opportunities because there are groups and organizations that recognize we need to have representation we need mm-hmm. to have folks that are part of our organizations, our treatment models, et cetera, who represent and can actually serve individuals. And so I, I have colleagues who, they're, they're amazing. They, they get and actively look at their stuff. They've sought treatment with individuals who work around the experience of whiteness and their whiteness. They are actively looking at being able to support other therapists and other individuals in the world who want to explore that part of the world. So I think that's some work that can be done. I think organizations and agencies need to take a look at who are you not paying attention to? Because the point is, it's not it's not a lack of black, brown, and indigenous individuals. It's they're leaving the spaces that are available or could potentially be available for them to influence the work Mm. because our institutions, our companies, our programs, our organizations are racist. That's just Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Race is a system that's been set up, you know, Mm -hmm. to create wealth, right? Like in a very basic way. And I'm not, you know, and I don't, necessarily kind of want to debate the because I remember sitting in classrooms is it race or is it economics it's both mm-hmm. right like so if you don't get that at the at this at the end of the day not the fact that we don't have these conversations about the fact that if I look at an organization everybody at the top looks a certain way and if I look at the bottom of an organization everybody looks a certain way yes right that that's part of the problem so for institutions to to take a look at that for groups and individuals to take a look at that i think is important i have i i have sat with people who are in pretty important positions of authority in the trauma world and and they've literally they ask and they ask and, and i've i've i work with i feel really blessed to work with individuals that do their best and they really do. They they are trying to show up around these experiences. Mm-hmm. And I've said things like, I will no longer, um, I'm not going to apply to train at your organization. I'm tired. I am tired of having to prove my value and my worth. 
So if you want to engage with me, I'm not engaging in the system of competition that happens around or the system of authority around that. So I had this conversation with this individual and they were like, oh, and I was like, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you have any idea what it feels like to have to constantly compete with prove mm -hmm. my worth about and value. It's like, I'm not a part of systems anymore. So I also think that there is a place around creating new systems. I really do. Like I feel, and, and it's not about, it's not, this isn't a, we need to burn it down. You know, I'm not, I'm not interested in, you know, in a contentious debate. It's literally, if, if this institution doesn't provide what needs to be provided, how do we create those institutions? Mm -hmm. I do, I, I, you know, I, I'm trained in uh, EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing, which is really big now, or, you know, it's been uh, highlighted through a few different celebrities. And so during the pandemic, I had an opportunity to um, train and I could, you know, do this all through Zoom. So it did impact my family. So I was able to connect with people in lots of different parts of the country and even the world. And so I was not interested in being a consultant. I was not interested in being a training and leadership role. But I did because there was no representation. Right. And so what I do now, I actually have a consultation later, actually in a couple of hours, is I'm working with individuals. And it, I mean, all different, you know, backgrounds, but in particular for black indigenous, black, brown, indigenous um, practitioners to, to be available to offer support and guidance and, and encouragement because you're our next generation, mm -hmm. right? Like there needs to be a visibility. People need to be able to ensure that I have a choice of seeing somebody sitting across from me. Right. Right. Like, because it does make a difference. And sometimes it's not just even about the color of your skin. It's about, well, do you, when I, language in and of itself, mm -hmm. that's, I mean, that in and of itself is, is a pretty significant piece, but that you understand, um, I grew up Catholic. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many, like it does, it sounds small, but it's not like, no, I, it's not. right. Mm -hmm. Like I have people, it's like, even if they are not a part of that tradition, when I say certain words, in their healing process, those words make sense and they hit a place Absolutely. and it's part of their process. It's like, so I think having representation in lots of different ways is important, but it, forgive me, in particular for black, brown and indigenous folks, I, as limited as our resources are, as far as we have to go, having come from the places I've come from, I am amazed that we are as far as we are. I'm amazed mm -hmm. that I could even be having this conversation because that was not the case for me 20 years ago right. at all. I mean, I had right. these conversations and I was kicked out of rooms, so. Yeah. But that's okay. I'm fine that's with being kicked surprising. out of rooms. Right, right. <laughs> so sorry, hopefully that made sense. That no, was all over the of place, course but. it did. And I think, you know, I'm grateful for your response because it makes me think about, you know, where we were, where we are. We still have a ways to go, but I mean, things are, there's definitely movement, to say the least. Um, I have so much more to say, but I'm, in, I'm trying to kind of like organize my thoughts. Um, what, would, what would it mean, another rogue question, but related, like what would real time 
decolonizing, decolonizing, I'm sorry, a clinical intervention look like? And let me explain. You know, so when you're talking about valuing the individual, lifting lived, uh, lived experiences, we talked a little bit about representation. You know, I often think about like that term in and of itself. We, and we hear all these terms nowadays, like, you know, where I think we use more terms now like that we did, like you said, 20 years ago. You know, I, I remember coming into the CPS world, for example, and I, you know, I was a 21-year-old who had no business having all that authority, right? I had a degree, but so what? You know, I was making decisions, really, really, really big decisions that shaped the life of many individuals. I didn't necessarily have the support. Anyways, all in all, I didn't, I don't remember using terms like institutional racism. I don't remember using terms like white supremacy. I don't remember using terms like abolishing. I didn't remember using terms like decolonizing, right? So when I think about breathing in, like practitioners really living into the space where it's going to be, where they're really, really connected to the impact that they want to have, Mm I guess my question, or I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on how how does that work? How do you how do you bring into, for example, EMDR, like community wisdom or Black mm. wisdom? How oh, do yeah. you bring? Yeah, yeah. How do you honor? You know, um, someone's support system um, being. You know the neighbor being as important as a family member or relative. How do you, you know, I guess, how do you step outside? And you talked a little bit about this. Like, Mm -hmm. how do you unlearn the tool, the module, the approach to really serve? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It's like, in in some ways, I think, so what I believe is true, because it it has happened for me, as I've learned different treatment models that have been geared towards, um, you know, it could be, you know, adolescents in the juvenile justice system. It could be kids that are involved in child protective services, because these are all the individuals that I served at various points um, and their families. There are treatment models that are around that talk about and take these, um, you know, take what are, what are experiences that we've, we've generated from community and they have said through research, these are now, you can now use these. These are researched and now they're, they're they make sense. They're sanctioned, yeah. right? So, so yes. Yeah, so you, if you, um, yes, the neighbor is, neighbor and other folks in the community are supports. And so now part of my model is, are these things? That's all well and good. The fact that it's a part of a model and it's vetted, it's how these tools help encourage those natural ways of connecting mm. and building communities, but how they also try to co-opt responsibility or, or take, um, wow. not responsibility, forgive me, they take uh, credit for. So so hmm. one of the things I would do just in very small ways as a, I, I don't play, I just don't play. <laughs> and so like I... I think because I was, I'm soft-spoken. I'm like, you know, I'm probably a very natural therapist at just, you know, slash um, counselor, whatever. Whatever words, you know, are true in this context. And so, so I, I would always speak to that. 
in my organizations and my groups, I always speak to that. Even when I'm providing consultation for people and they start talking about the organizations and the agencies, I am literally saying, well, so this is how they're going to hear you and these are the ways you need to mm-hmm. do it. And how does it fit for your client? So I am always bringing those things in. So I think for those folks who are part of the work and they're seeing that, speak to it. Find the safest ways for your, you know, to speak you know, to it, but speak to it. Also, don't let the credit go specifically to the model, to the institution, to the That's community. Right. Even if it's just for you to sit here and just like, of course the neighbor makes sense. Why right. wouldn't the neighbor make sense? Why wouldn't you know right. these natural supports make, make sense? Um, giving credit to the client. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that's so important for us as practitioners is to do our work. We need to do our work. I can't tell you how many times I'll sit with somebody and they're apologizing and I'm calling them unapologizing. And then I, and I'm literally saying to them and I, you know, you know, talking about um, disclosure. I mean, it's not hard to disclose when, you know, um, it's, it's evident and clear, you know, that, mm-hmm. you know, I'm black um, or that I come from X, Y, and Z group where I identify as queer, but I, I speak it out loud. I, I yeah. speak to the fact that, yeah. yeah, this is hard for me. I can't tell you how many clients that I've talked to who say, I'm just so grateful. The reason why I'm sticking to this is because I know you've gone through this. I don't get into specifics. I don't make this work yes. I don't, about them, but I make it about, I'm a, how could I not be affected by the system? Look at me. Right. 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 And so if I can do it, you can do it. And I, if I right. can still be doing it, you can do it. And the other piece too, you know, that is important is, you know, depression and anxiety are actually clues to us that our life is moving in a direction that is changing. Mm-hmm. We have taken depression and anxiety and we have made it a problem. We've made it a disorder. And I'm not mm-hmm. saying that it isn't because there's mm-hmm. a time and a place where it is and there's a time and a place when it isn't. So I often will speak to, I, a lot of the work I do, depending on the models that I'm practicing, it is all geared towards, I want you to check in. Literally, mm-hmm. these are the words I can tell you. The folks who work with me, they know, oh my gosh, she's gonna say this thing. I want you to check in with yourself. I don't I want you to scan, to right? right? <laughs> like, I do. And, and, I, and I will even do it, I'll do it in sessions with people. They'll say something, because this happens for us. We're working with individuals and we're like, ooh, boy, this is, wow, there's some stuff yeah. here, right? I'll stop and I'll say, okay, I got to stop for a moment. I need to just check in with myself. Okay, I'm mm-hmm. kind of scanning and I'm noticing. And I might even speak out loud to what's happening in my body, mm-hmm. right? Because that's the other thing that we do. One of the biggest pieces of colonization is our bodies are not ours. So we put in our heads that our bodies are not ours. We are so disconnected from our bodies. It is unreal. So just even stopping with somebody and saying to check in or or demonstrating and modeling, I'm going to stop and I'm going to check in. Oh, boy, there it is. Yeah, I can feel that. Mm -hmm. What's amazing, too, is that there are are so many. What's great is in the research world, parts of the Mm -hmm. research world, parts of the um, mental health world, the treatment world, because I don't want to make it black and white because it's not there are practitioners that are speaking to this they're writing to this just even alone this concept of decolonizing mental health it's like look up the research resources look up to see who's reading writing not to necessarily you know take in an information but to just kind of get a feel out what's out there see what connects with you because i think the point 
the point that I feel like is important, when, whether I'm sitting with somebody and we're kind of talking about, okay, where are you? What are we doing? What's happening? Right? Like what's happening for you just like on a, just in terms of this clinical mm-hmm. work. Um, but it's also being able to, to say, does, does this fit for me? Does this work for me? It does it or doesn't. Like to be able to decide that instead of just assuming that I'm going to go, I can't tell you how many times I'll go to a training. I'm like, yeah, and so and so, and they have this book and they do this. And then I'm like, oh my gosh. This is, I'm, and I start asking questions that are about the, you know, the individuals that I work with who mm-hmm. have had some of the most horrific uh, trauma experiences, experiences of violence, and they can't speak to it. They can't provide, and it's not that they even say, well, you know what, I don't know. Let's actually work through this and work this out. And I'm not saying everybody believes this, but like, or does this, um, but there's no conversation. I know mm-hmm. when I walk to one of these experts in the fields and we start having a conversation about something they don't know, you can tell them, you can have anti-racist, you can have, um, whatever labels you want to attach to Jingles, it that makes me believe sure. that you're, organi- organiz- you're an organization that can actually engage the black, brown, indigenous experience. And I know you can't, because if you can't sit with the discomfort of the fact that you you can't yeah. have answers. We're just talking about this. How could yeah. you have answers about this? We're in kindergarten. <laughs> like right now. <laughs> right. We got to get to a PhD and we're in kindergarten and you're trying to that in and of itself. So the individuals that can sit here and have this conversation with me, because I'll have this conversation with anybody. I'll have this conversation with anybody who wants to have this conversation. If you can have this conversation with me, I will buy into your model. Or I'll Mm -hmm. at least buy into the fact that you are engaged in creating a model or supports and resources that could actually help. And work, yeah. Right, for people, so. That's that's amazing. No, you're you're absolutely. Apologizing and demonstrating to you this. Right. Yeah. It's it's I, I love this. I, I feel like we could do a part two of this conversation. And I know we only have a few more minutes yeah. left, but I guess my last question to you, Natasha, is when you think about you know, organizations, service service uh human service organizations, practitioners, providers, when you think about those entities and individuals that are in like in the in the in between, wanting to make um, changes and shifts in their practices, what are maybe two things that come to mind that can help support those changes for organizations, for like, practitioners, like practical changes? Yeah, that can steer them into this direction of really being aware and implementing some of the things that we've been talking about. Right. Like, this may sound strange, but I think finding a community to have these kind of conversations or creating a community to have these conversations, whether it's within the organization or outside, Mm -hmm. because I think a big part of this is to actually, in real time, get feedback and information from the people that you're serving and from the people who work for you. Just get information and feedback just as a start. Um, and then look at how you're going to implement those changes. Yeah. Do you know, like it sounds, you know, it's not, because I think that self-reflection piece mm-hmm. is everything, you know, and it yeah. sounds small, but it's like sitting down and saying, I want to have a conversation at lunch with somebody that I don't talk to. I don't talk to you. 
Mm-hmm. You're sitting in an organization where you're trying to engage change, and yet you don't actually sit down, nor do you talk to somebody who doesn't look like you. Right. So I don't know. What's, what's going on? Yeah. I mean, so it's like, I want to, you know, I want, what I want to say is, yes, you're going to get this manual, and then you're going to change your, because um, this is what happens. We changed our intake process. We now have an intake process that includes two additional questions to speak to culture and race, yeah. right? Like, that's not, we, you know, I, I'm working with the police department in my community. We hired these three black police officers. Rolls eyes. <laughs> yeah. I, like, so implementing change before you have a sense of what change you're implementing and why, that's a problem. It's a setup. That's You huge. know? So, yeah. yeah. Thank you so much. You, listeners, here we have it. Natasha mm-hmm. Kirlesia, like, thank you. Did I pronounce, I always mess up your yeah. last name. Did yeah, I pronounce? you did. Yeah. I practiced before. <laughs> I've known you for years, but I like I just want to make sure that I said it right. Um, I am so grateful. Um, I know we are so grateful for for this time and this space and all the expertise and knowledge that you've shared with us today. Um, we hope in the future that you can be back and continue this conversation with us. But thank you so much for your time today, and we look forward to dive in in again in another episode of The Pivot. Thank you so much, Natasha. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And now for our last words, a piece by Phyllis Whitley titled On Being Brought from Africa to America. Twas mercy brought me from my pagan land, taught my benighted soul to understand that there's a God, that there's a Savior too, once I redemption neither sought nor knew. Some view our sable race with scornful eye. Their color is a diabolical dye. Remember, Christians, Negroes, black as cane, may be refined and join the angelic train. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Pivot Towards Promising Futures podcast. If you know of any work or effort happening in your organization or community that would add to the discussion generated by this series, please email us with the information about your efforts and we will be sure to reach out to you. You can email us at thepivot at futureswithoutviolence.org. Again, T-H-E. P-I-V-O-T at futureswithoutviolence.org. A very special thank you to Chance Taylor for his ongoing support in editing these episodes. Until next time, and thank you again for joining us.